Glad to see you all. Before we jump in, I've got a few things I want to mention. Um, one thing is one thing is a little heavy. A couple things are more rejoicing. Um, one, uh, if you've heard my story at all, I didn't grow up in church. Um, Christ was not a factor in my home growing up until late in high school. Uh, I went to a, a, a summer camp. Gave my life to Jesus and just found my way into the church and changed my life. And one of the guys who was so instrumental in that was uh, my youth pastor. His name was Dave Harney. And here's a picture of Dave and Mary Harney. Um, Dave was a youth pastor into his 50s, and he was amazing. He was uh, the first example uh, of a pastor I ever had, um, the first pastor I ever knew. And uh, Dave went home to be with the Lord this past Monday. Uh, he was 78 years old. He was a relatively healthy man, um, but he had double pneumonia and COVID. And so over the course of, gosh, a week and a half, uh, it, it hit hard and fast. And so we were waiting this past week to find out plans for a funeral service. Um, my wife and I are going to be heading up. Uh, it's actually this, this next Friday, this coming Friday. So we'll head up to Ohio uh, on Thursday for um, funeral services on Friday, and then we'll be heading back on Saturday to be here next Sunday. So if you all think about it, be praying for Mary Harney uh, and the Harney family. Uh, amazing, amazing folks and uh, came as a surprise. So I really just want, want you to all be praying for Mary as you think about her. Um, so if you could do that for me, that'd be awesome. Uh, today is the 16th birthday of my middle son, Aiden. He's not in the room. Otherwise, we'd sing to him. Just kidding. We wouldn't do that regardless. Um, but he's the big 1-6 today. So if you see him, give him a shout out. Um, get that boy driving soon. So we have another driver in the house. We're excited about that. Uh, one other thing I want to mention before we jump into the sermon is we have a brand new, newly married couple in our midst. If you look around and try to guess who it is, it's Dylan and Kylie Rafford, and they are over here. So let's congratulate them. First Sunday in church, and old Dylan forgot his wedding ring. Oh, that's all right. This is, did I just call you out? I'm sorry, man. <laughs> Marriage is all about grace, right? So we'll see that hopefully on display today. Um, let's pray. We're going to jump into week number four of Gentle and Lowly. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. Thank you for the opportunity that we have again to worship you, to come into the Father's house, this place where your people gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can worship you, we can open your word and hear from your heart. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look again into the heart of Christ, that, God, you would change the way that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we live based on what we know is true of the Lord Jesus. And so, would you meet with us today, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we're in week number four, as I said, of the series called Gentle and Lowly. It's based off a book by a gentleman named Dane Ortland. There are still free books available out at our guest services out here. If you haven't grabbed a copy, feel free to grab one. Uh, if you know someone that you think it would be a blessing to, grab one or two. Um, we've, I promise you we've got plenty of copies, all right? So make, your, make yourselves uh, avail of that. Um, I don't even know what I'm saying. Just grab one. All right, that's what I mean. Um, <laughs> um, there are groups, connection groups, if you want to jump into a group and connect with folks and talk through the content, either Sunday morning content, the book content, there's also a video that goes along with it. Um, you can sign up for that. You can get more info at friendshipwired.com. There's a couple adult groups, one on Sunday night, one on Wednesday night, uh, a ladies group that meets on Wednesday mornings. So if you want to know more, um, go to friendshipwired.com, look for the gentle and lowly tab. All our, our resources are there. 
Okay, so this series, Gentle and Lily, it's all about the heart of Christ for us. And it's based off of Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty nine, where he says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so each week what we're doing is we're trying to consider this idea. We're trying to dig deeper into the heart of Christ for us so that hopefully it will change the way, again, that we think and the way that we feel and the way that we live. And so I hope you're digging in in some way, shape, or form over this 10-week journey. This week we are kind of considering the, the book chapters, chapters 8 and 9, and the sermon title today is Jesus Doesn't Cancel Us. So let me ask you a question right off the bat. How many of you are familiar with or have heard the term cancel culture? How many of you are familiar with it? Okay, some of you haven't heard it. Maybe some of you have heard it and you're like, I don't even know what that really means. So let me talk about this for a minute because this is a, a phrase that has become pretty common in our culture over the last two years. Um, one of the resources I use a lot, uh, to be honest, is dictionary.com. They actually gave a really good definition. Let me read it to you. Cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for, in other words, canceling, public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming. All right, so think about canceling. Think about, if you just think about it in the simple terms of how we use this term every day, like literally if you, you pull out your phone today and you try to set a calendar event, you can, you can either confirm it or you know what the other option is? You can cancel it, okay? Um, I had to check this out because I was like, gosh, that's everywhere. Every single app, you go into your email app, you start to compose an email, you can save a draft of it, you can send an email off, or you can cancel it, all right? So you can cancel. Everywhere you go, every app, there's this opportunity to just write something off or to put it aside. And in cancel culture, what that says is basically somebody or an organization has done something I don't agree with, I don't like, it's offensive to me, I object to it, and so I'm going to cancel, I don't write it off. And typically it happens through social media, it happens in kind of group shaming, um, where we're just going to cancel an individual or a company. Let me read you Cambridge Dictionary. They had a quote, uh, a quote here, defined it similarly as dictionary.com, but there's a quote that I wanted to read. It says this, in a cancel culture, we appoint ourselves the arbiters of right and wrong and also judge and jury because thanks to social media, we get to dole out punishment. And so because we all have the, the power of you know, social media and our voice and we can put it out there and collectively we can shame or, you know, um, or, or, or put something um, out of, of, of our use or you know, we cancel it. And this is, this is a quote. Let me read you a couple more quotes. Pew Research Center did a survey in September of 2020. And they did it from people amongst like every end of the political spectrum. Because a lot of times this plays out in the political arena. And so the first quote is from a man who was in his 50s, a conservative Republican. And this is how he defines cancel culture. He said, cancel culture is destroying a person's career or reputation based on past events in which that person participated, or past statements that person has made, even if their beliefs or opinions have changed. So that's a conservative Republican. Listen to a liberal Democrat in their 20s. Uh, a male said this, cancel culture is a synonym for political 
corrected, correctness, where words and phrases are taken out of context to bury the careers of people. A mob mentality. All right, so whether you're right or left-leaning, left the idea is, is clearly understood that cancel culture is, I'm, a, I'm offended, I object, I want to write you off. Now, in our current culture, in, our, in our, the, the last week, current events, there is an event that took place in the sports world. Maybe you pay attention to sports and you heard of this. Maybe you don't pay attention to sports and you heard of this. The National Football League, the NFL, if you know me, I love football. And there was a coach in the NFL, uh, John Gruden, coach of the Las Vegas Raiders. Now, maybe if you haven't paid attention to sports in a while, you're like, Las Vegas Raiders? Uh, They were formerly the Oakland Raiders, formerly the Los Angeles Raiders. They're now the Las Vegas Raiders, all right? Um, And so John Gruden has been the coach of the Raiders for the past four or five years, and What happened over the past couple weeks is the NFL was doing an investigation, totally unrelated to John Gruden. It was an investigation into the culture of the Washington football team. And in this this investigation, they uncovered an email from 2010 between John Gruden and the owner at at that point of the Washington football team. And uh, he made comments that appeared to be disparaging of DeMorris Smith, who is the the head of the NFLPA, the Players Association, okay, big high-ranking figure who happens to be an African-American male. And so John Gruden made a comment that appeared disparaging. And so, man, there was all kinds of of stuff. It looked really bad. There was a lot of pushback on this. And, uh, you know, this is one email from 2010. Well, a firestorm erupted as that that investigation continued and they uncovered a number of emails over a course of years containing comments and language that, were, uh, that appeared to be racist and misogynistic and homophobic. And so a lot of pressure on this, this Raiders organization and on the NFL and on John Gruden, who eventually resigned. So big event in the news, in the sports world, in a big way over the last week. So some people have looked at this situation and said this falls into the category of cancel culture. He did some offensive, offensive things, and so now he's out of the league. He'll probably never work in the NFL again. We've canceled him. Some would say it's cancel culture. I read an article um, from Relevant Magazine, which is a Christian publication, and the, the title of it was, uh, it, it mentioned how this is not cancel culture. This is simply reaping what you have sown. And so I, 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 I see all these different perspectives, and I, I think there's some validity in all of those things. But um, I've just been thinking about this event over the past week, especially in light of the things that we're going we're gonna to see about who Jesus is. And what I want to do before we jump into the scriptures is I want to show you a video uh, from a, pe- a press conference from this past week, uh, a Raiders press conference involving Derek Carr, who is the quarterback for the Las Vegas Raiders. And he has a reputation for being a good, upstanding Christian man, high in character. And it's also known over his career with Coach Gruden that Coach Gruden is, he's, he's a football coach and he can be vulgar and hard-nosed and, and, and presses against Derek Carr and his you know, clean-cut Christian, you know, personality. And so there's always been this, how are these two figures lining up with one another? And so Derek Carr came into a press conference this last week and reporters were asking him, hey, how's it going? How's the team feeling? 
what do you think about all of this? And he had what I thought was a really incredible response. So I want you to check this out for the next two minutes. I just tried to push everything off. Yep, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sick about it. Uh, have a lot of emotions, angry, sick, you know, upset, mad, frustrated, all, all those things, empathy, you know, whatever, you know, all, no one has a, I don't think there's a book on how to handle all this, you know, um, or uh, actually there is, but I don't think, I don't think that there's a, a way for a quarterback to stand up here and answer these type of questions is what I should say. It was a lot, you know, to handle, I'll say it that way, <laughs> like, uh, y'all know me, man, I don't, I don't condone that kind of talk. I don't talk that way. My kids sure as heck will never talk that way, you know. And, uh, you know, it's hard because I love the man so much. You know what I mean? Like I have family members that have done things. I've done things that I'm glad that I'm still loved, you know. And uh, I think more than anything, coach needs people to help him, to love him, you know, uh, uh, in, in whatever areas, you know, that we can but at the same time, what's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. Don't get me wrong, I, I love the man, right? Um, you know, and I, uh, you know, I hate, you know, uh, you, know you, hate, you hate the sin, you know, like for me, you hate for anybody. No one's perfect, you know? If we just started opening up everybody's private emails and texts, you know, people would start sweating a little bit. You see what I'm saying? Um, Hopefully, hopefully not too many, you know, uh, but maybe that's what they should do for all coaches and GMs and owners from now on is open up. You got to open up everything, you know, see what happens. Um, but uh, you hate, you hate the action. You hate it. Um, you're not supposed to like it, uh, but you love the person. And I love the person, you know, I've grew, I've grown to love him uh, so much. Long story short, man, you hate, you hate, you feel for everybody involved. Um, but I will always be someone, no matter who does what, I'm going to love you, you know. And if that's wrong, then I'm okay being wrong. Um, I, I'm going to try and build people up no matter what. Um, that doesn't make what they did right, but I'm always going to be there to try and be there on the next step, on the other side, to try and lift them back up and love them up again. What a great response, right? Um, I just keep laughing about the fact that he's like, my kids sure as heck ain't going to talk like that. <laughs> Careful there, Derek. Um, but I love it. Here's a, a, an NFL quarterback talking about sin. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I love his response. And I feel like his response uh, echoes the heart of Christ for us um, in the midst of a cancel culture. And let me, let me just share with you a few of, of my thoughts and the things that have been just kind of bouncing around in my head. I don't know if they'll make any sense as I verbalize them, but a few things I've been thinking. You know, when it comes to Coach, you know, John Gruden, were his words, were his actions, his language, were they wrong and were they sinful? I haven't read it. I haven't read all that stuff, but it sounds like it. It sounds like, yes, there was some sinful words and language and thoughts there. Um, is this who he is? Uh, could he have changed since those things came out? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, yes, he could have. There is a, a possibility that his heart has changed, and that's not who he is any longer. I don't know. Are there consequences for sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. The scripture says, Galatians 6, 7, that we're going to reap what we, what we sow. And so there are consequences. Uh, I do love Derek, Derek's uh, comments on opening up everything. You know, that if we opened up 
everyone's public communicate or private communication, like people would start sweating. The idea being like no one could escape clean, right? That we'd all be guilty if you dug enough. But, but kind of when you think about it, here's the reality too, is that you could open up all written communication and all you're going to change is human behavior. You're not going to change the human heart. Because you know as well as, as I do, if you have kids or if you've been a kid, like you just learn to behave differently. It, John Gruden was guilty of probably some sinful thoughts, yes, but he's also guilty of putting those thoughts on, you know, in written form where he could be caught. So even if you opened up all communications, people would get better at hiding their hearts. You know, and, and, and all I could think with this, um, with this whole situation was I just kind of turned um, inward and just thought, man, if... If I were to be judged, and he's a public figure on a much higher scale than, by far than I am, but if, if I were to be judged off something I, I said or did or thought or wrote 10 years ago uh, or two years ago, two or three days ago, you know what the reality is? Uh, I'd, I'd be guilty. I could be easily canceled. Um, Because the reality is, at the end of the day, every single one of us needs grace. And every single one of us could be, and maybe should be, canceled. But this is what we're going to talk about today, is that this is not who Jesus is. And so the big idea today, the bottom line, is that Jesus doesn't cancel us. Jesus doesn't cancel us. He cancels our sin, and then he contends for us. He doesn't cancel us. He cancels our sin, and then he contends. He fights for us. And this is is what his gentle and lowly heart is is all about. And so I want to take a few minutes this morning to consider how he does this, how he cancels our sin, and how he contends for us. And it's it's wrapped up in three things that Jesus does. So to, to give you kind of the way forward, here's those three things. He justifies us. He intercedes for us, and he advocates for us. He justifies us, he intercedes for us, and he advocates for us. These are three theological terms, but man, so important for us to understand about the heart of Christ. So this first thing, he justifies us. We won't spend a lot of time here because we talk about this often, but I don't want to take for granted that you understand that or that there's someone here who doesn't get what this means. He justifies us. So to be justified, what it means is to be declared righteous or to to be declared innocent in the sight of God. So in other words, we're guilty. There's something we're guilty of. We're guilty of sin against God. And so we should be punished, but we are fully exonerated. We're fully cleared based upon what Jesus has done for us. So we're guilty, but we're set free. Our record is set clean because of Jesus and his death and his burial and his resurrection. He justifies us. Let me take you to the scriptures. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, it says this. And you, this is kind of a before and after. You who were dead in your trespasses, you were dead in your sin, spiritually dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by doing what? Verse 14, by what? Canceling. 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So think about this, this this record of, of debt that we have racked up. If you have any physical debt whatsoever, like if you were to go through a ledger and list out line by line all of the, the expenses, the purchases, the debt you have racked up, you would have this ledger, this record of debt. And if someone were to come in and cancel that record of debt, they would put your balance at zero, right? They would clear you of all of your debt. And what it says here is that we have this record of debt against us. It's a sin debt. If you, were to, if you were to take the last week of your life and list out a ledger line by line, day by day, you would have multiple, multiple, multiple pages and maybe miles of this ledger of, of your sins, this record of your sins. And what it tells us in Colossians is that Jesus, by what he has done, he has canceled that record of our debt And the way that he did that was he nailed it to a tree. He nailed it to a cross. And if you don't know the story, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, lived a perfect life, free of sin, the only one who was perfectly righteous. He allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. And along with his body and his life being nailed to this cross, so was our record of sin so that he could cancel that debt that was against us. And so he is the one who justifies. He is the one who cancels this record of debt that we could never, ever pay. And so we have to start there. This is the work of Jesus, that he justifies us. So he, he doesn't cancel us because of our sin. No, he's already done the work to cancel our sin. He cancels our sin, and then he contends for us. So how does he contend or fight for us? Well, the next thing is this, he, he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. So what does it mean to intercede? When somebody intercedes, it's typically you have two parties and then you have a third party who kind of comes in between in an attempt to mediate or to reconcile these two parties. Um, so in, in, in kind of church world, if you were to make the statement that you were interceding for me, on my behalf. You know what that means? It means you're praying for me, right? You're taking my needs, my requests, and you are bringing them before God. You're interceding on my behalf. You're the third party. It's between me and, and God. And what the scriptures tell us is that Jesus intercedes for us, that he brings our requests, he brings our needs before the Father. Romans chapter 8, an incredible chapter of scripture in verses 33 and 34. Paul says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, God's children? It is God who justifies. We just saw that. He is the one who makes us just, just as if I'd never sinned. He justifies. Verse 34, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So what it tells us is that the current activity of Jesus, the current ministry of Jesus in heaven is he is at the right hand of God the Father and he's interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's praying over you. He's bringing these requests to the Father. Not that the Father is like cold towards you, 
but, but Jesus is simply cheering us on and constantly reminding the Father of, of, of what he's done for us and who we are in Christ. I love this example or the illustration in the book where he, he talks about, it's like an older brother who's cheering on his younger brother who's in a race. And the younger brother, even though he's way out ahead and he's, he's clearly going to win this race, the older brother doesn't just stop cheering for him, right? He just keeps hooting and hollering for him. He's cheering him on until he crosses the finish line. He continues. And this is the same way with Jesus. As our older brother, he continues to cheer us on before the Father and remind him of our identity in Christ. Let me read you a quote from the book. Dane Ortland says this in kind of clarifying the difference between justification and intercession. He says this, justification is tied to what Christ did in the past. Intercession is what he is doing in the present. So we talk a lot about what Jesus has done for us, the finished work of Christ, that he died for us, that he rose again to forgive us of our sin. That is, that is the work of justification, something that he did in the past. But it's not like he died on the cross, he rose again and just went to heaven and just said, hey, you're on your own, go do your own thing, just live your own life. No, this is this constant moment by moment ministry of Jesus on our behalf, praying for you. He, he goes on in another place to say this, the atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment by moment application of that atoning work. So this is what Jesus is doing right now, is he's interceding for you. Hebrews 7, 25, let me read this verse as well. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So, so what he says is there's never a moment, listen, there's never a moment where Jesus isn't in the Father's ear about you, where he's praying for you and he's bringing your needs before him. In fact, in Romans 8, the passage we just saw, when it talks about he's interceding for us, a few verses earlier, it talks about the Holy Spirit who is also interceding for us. Sometimes when we don't even know what to pray or how to pray, it says that the Spirit is interceding on our behalf. There's never a moment. You can drift off this morning, your mind will go to other places. You think about what's going on later today or this week, and, and there's not a moment through all of this where Jesus isn't praying for you and for your needs. He's praying for the needs you don't even realize you have. He is interceding on your behalf. Louis Burkhoff, an old theologian, he says this, it's, it is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life, even when your prayer life stinks, he's praying for you. Like y'all, could you imagine if we said, as a church, we're gonna pray for you for the next week. And so we're gonna set up time slots for every hour for the next seven days to pray specifically for you. And how would you go through that week knowing that there are people praying for you every minute of every day of your week. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? Like, wouldn't you feel empowered to know that there are people who love you or are praying for you? Listen, y'all, this is the ministry of Jesus for you 
365. It says he always lives to intercede for you. What do you live for? We ask that question. Jesus, what do you live for? You know what his answer would be? To intercede for you. To bring your needs and your requests before the Father. He lives to intercede for us. So he canceled our sin. He justified us. Now he contends for us. How does he contend for us? He intercedes for us. Another thing is this, and this is the last thing we'll we'll talk about, is that he advocates for us. He advocates for us. He is our advocate. Now, what does this mean? It's it's very similar. It overlaps with this idea of, of intercession. And I want to take you again to a quote from the book to help us see the difference. Dane Ortland says this, Intercession has the idea of mediating between two parties, bringing them together. Advocacy is similar, but has the idea of aligning oneself with another. All right, so intercession, two parties, a third party comes in between to try to bring those two parties together. Whereas an advocate stands on the side of, of a party. All right, so it's, it's not that God the Father is against us. It's more about the fact that Jesus is for us. He is our advocate. So think about anything in your life that you support or you're, you uh, are an advocate for. Um, so like, let me throw out an example. I'm an advocate for adoption. I just think adoption is such a beautiful, amazing thing that the church should be more involved and more engaged in. That doesn't mean I'm against natural birth, right? Or I'm against fostering. No, it just means I think this is an amazing thing that, I'm an, that I advocate for. It's the same way with Jesus. He is our advocate. He is the one who, when we sin, he defends us. He sides with us. He is for us. He's reminding the Father of, of our position in Christ and all that he's done for us. 1 John 2, verse 1, it says this. If, you don't, if you've never heard this verse, man, this will blow your mind. 1 John 2, 1, John says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says, I'm writing all of this because I don't want you to sin. We're not made to continue to live in and walk in sin anymore. My little children, those of you who are sons and daughters of God, but... He knows our frame. He knows what we're made of because he's one of us. He says, if you sin, listen, you have an advocate with a father. You have one who defends you and supports you and fights for you, not because you're not guilty. No, but because he's already done everything that is required to pay for your sin, to pay the price. And so he is our advocate. He is our advocate. Let me read you another quote from the book. Ortland says this, We are indeed called to forsake our sins, and no healthy Christian would suggest otherwise. When we choose to sin, we forsake our true identity as a child of God. We invite misery into our lives, and we displease our Heavenly Father. We are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord, truer consecration, new vistas of obedience. But when we don't, When we choose to sin, 
Though we forsake our true identity, our Savior does not forsake us. In other words, he doesn't cancel us. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all of our messiness. He is our advocate. He is our advocate. When the accusations come from the enemy, when the accusations come from our own minds and our hearts, he is the one who defends us and reminds us of who we are in Christ. So he justifies us. He cancels our sin. He doesn't cancel us. And then he contends for us. He intercedes for us. He advocates for us. So how do we apply this? How do we live in light of this truth? Let me give you three, three quick things to think about here. Here's, here's the first. You can know he's always praying for and defending you. You can know that he's always praying for and defending you. You don't have to look over your shoulder and wonder, is he for me? He always lives to intercede for you. He's always defending you. He is your advocate, even when you blow it, even when you mess up, even when you can't forgive yourself. He has forgiven you and he is, he is interceding and advocating for you. You can know this. And again, I love this thought that he's always in the Father's ear about you. Always. He's always talking to the Father about you and how he loves you and your identity in him. So you can know he's always praying for and defending you. If you can get that into your head and into your heart, it'll help the way you walk out each of your days. But here's, here's a second thing. You can stop playing the defense attorney and or the prosecuting attorney with yourself. You can stop playing the defense attorney and or the prosecuting attorney with yourself. Here's what I mean by this, is that we tend to be our own best attorney, right? When it comes to defense, when, when we defend ourselves, what we, what we do when it comes to our sin is we say, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. It's not really that bad. It's not really that big of a deal. We may minimize it. We may shrug it off. We may make excuses. We may shift the blame and follow our forefathers, Adam and Eve. We defend ourselves and we're, we're good at doing this. Maybe this is one of your gifts. You, it's hard for you to admit when you're wrong or when you have sinned. You are constantly defending yourself. And when you understand that Jesus is the one who justifies, that he is the one who has forgiven and does forgive, and he is interceding for you, he's advocating for you, you can stop defending yourself. You can just be honest. You can come in humility and just give your sin to him, realizing that he is your defense. You don't have to defend yourself anymore. But then you can also stop playing the part of the prosecuting attorney. And for me, this is what I kind of tend to gravitate towards more, is, is the prosecution. Not I'm innocent, but you know what I would say more often? I'm guilty. I'm guilty. God, you see it all. You know it all. 
you know how much my sin disgusts me. And, and so I would tend to pile on myself and I would go into this shame and kind of loathing. Like there's no way that God could love me or believe in me or use me. And I, I become a prosecuting attorney with myself. And the more we can understand this truth that he justifies and he intercedes and he advocates, he is constantly contending for me. He hasn't canceled me. He's canceled my sin, and now he's contending for me. I can drop this prosecuting attorney thing. I got to stop condemning myself because he's already taken the condemnation. The prosecution has already occurred on the cross, and he's canceled my debt of sin, my record of debt. I can stop playing the defense attorney, and I can stop playing the prosecuting attorney with myself. And then there's a third thing. You can stop playing judge and jury with others. You can stop playing judge and juries with other judge and jury with others. Instead, we can look to the only righteous judge. So let me say this, and uh, sometimes I wonder if I should. I don't know if this is like therapy for myself, but like uh, I have a confession to make and I, I hate saying it. I hate admitting this about myself, but this is just true about who I am and I want it to change. But I tend to write people off. I don't know if you do this or not, but when, when somebody offends me or cancels me, you know what I tend to do? I tend to cancel them. I tend to kind of write them off and, and maybe think there's no hope for them or my judgment on them is, is sealed. Their fate in my mind is sealed. And I don't think, well, I forget that God could change them. I forget that I'm a sinner as well. And I tend to, to be the judge and jury rather than, man, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna believe that the only righteous judge has already done what is necessary to forgive this person, that that righteous judge has the power to change their heart. And that righteous judge is pleading to the Father on their behalf. And he's interceding at the right hand of the Father for that person that I have been judge and jury over. And he's advocating, he is defending that one who I am trying to prosecute. And when I play judge and jury, I put myself at odds with the one who is defending this one that I have written off. Y'all, the more that we can understand and realize that he is the one who justifies and he intercedes and he advocates for you and for me and every son and daughter of God, the more that we can, we can stop writing people off, the more that we can stop playing judge and jury and we can point others to and we can look to the righteous judge. That isn't you, that isn't me. Second Timothy 4.8 tells us, Paul said, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. There's only one righteous judge and it's not me. It's the Lord. 
what an amazing, amazing thing. How amazing is the heart of Christ for you. He is gentle and lowly that he doesn't cancel you. Listen, our culture, and maybe we've been part of this, we've been guilty of canceling people or organizations or companies or anything that we find objectionable or that we disagree with. Praise the Lord that his heart for us is not to cancel us, not to write us off. There's been so many occasions when in my life I'm like, man, if, if others knew, man, they would write me off. But thank God he doesn't cancel you. But he intercedes for you. He cancels your sin and now he contends for you. Day and night, every moment, he intercedes for you. He has justified you. He lives to intercede for you. And when you sin, when you sin, every time you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. Isn't that amazing? Amen. I want you to stand with me this morning. I just want you to take a moment. If you would just stand and if you're grateful for who he is, would you take a moment just to bow your head and close your eyes and just take a moment to rejoice and thank the Lord that this is his heart for you.